for 25 years. Nothing has tasted better after a hard day's work than a Mike's Hard Lemonade. It's because since day one, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. We use three kinds of lemons, all hand-picked from family farms, then blended to perfection in cold press to create the epic hard lemonade you know and love. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May of 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. There's no place to escape to. This is the last time. On the left. (laughs) That's when the cannibalism started. Um, all right, this is the last podcast of the left, everyone. I am Ben Kissel. That's Marcus Parks. I'm He's back in free in speech, free speech yeah. jail. You're in free speech jail. <laughs> yeah, but this time, Ben, you were the one that put him in free speech jail. So there you go. It's your first time here with me, my friend, and it gets a lot harder than with Marcus. <laughs> I got to say, your locker room talk is starting to sound a little bit more like Abu Ghraib, but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> don't, all right, Sandy, you don't tell know me how to be. All right. All right. So, it's Halloween, fuckers. This is Halloween. And today's episode, in honor of Halloween, our favorite month uh, is October. We do scary listener pastas, and uh, that's what we have today. This is an actual successful listener pasta. It episode. is. We, yeah, I, we. Uh, I think we have some real, uh, good, uh, a good buffet of of, uh, of creepy. A lot and, of military stories this yeah. year, and they're awesome. Yeah, because they've seen some shit. They've done some stuff. We've done nothing. <laughs> no, no, we're lazy. <laughs> they're we're actually they're the heroes. We literally sit. With three microphones. Yeah. I mean, we reek of beer. Oh, sure. My body is wet yeah. under my tits. Why and not? I've done nothing. Nothing. You know I mean, I'm not in Iraq right now. I'm not running around with a vest on. Ten foot fucking exoskeleton. <laughs> We're going to okay, get to okay, those. Okay, We're going to get to those. Um, all right, everyone. So uh, enjoy the episode. And let's just uh, kick it off with our first uh, listener pasta. Listener pasta to you do it again. <laughs> That's the name of the sequel. You do it. Again. You do it. You do you it do this it. time. You do yeah. it one more time. You take over and do it. All right. Enjoy. Now we've got a story from one of our personal favorites, Sergeant Goldenthroat. He called in on the last uh, Listener Pasta episode, told a wonderful tale, and I would assume he has a similar one for us here today. You better, because the last time your story was the best one, yes. and it's the reason why we can continue to do Listener Pastas without getting total, complete waves of bullshit. Yeah, we're only getting half waves of bullshit, bullshit right now. Right, hi guys, and hey. hello to all the listeners. Nice to be back. Um, I felt some love over the last year for the... Uh, uh, snake-handed horror last year that yeah. went went down pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, as I think you guys, you probably remember. Uh, just to fill people in, in case they haven't listened to it, um, I, I work for the British government. Um, I'm currently seconded with the military, so there was a kind of military security angle to last year's story, if you remember. And that is completely um, true. That is that is what was great about that story. Is I mean, like you do work for the government. That's why you are under an assumed name. No, no, that's his actual government-given name, oh. Sergeant Goldenthrow. <laughs> Sergeant Hardrod. 
golden throne. <laughs> yes, he facilitates the generals. That's right. Yeah, obviously, I can't go into huge uh, detail on this because there's there's a lot of sensitivity surrounding it. But suffice to say, um, I think Henry's nailed it last year when he said that the higher ups know about all kinds of weird shit that's going on around the world with regard to military security issues, but it's just not shared. And that's true about just conventional security, but it's also true about some of the, uh, I think, what's best described as weird shit that goes on uh, from time to time. But this year, I've got something for you that's not up to the minute, but is 100 years old. So I'm going to take you back in time to the trenches of the Somme, September 1916. I don't know if you know about the Somme, but it was the most horrific battle of the First World War. See, I, when I hear the word Psalm, I think of that fucking documentary with all the guys smelling wine, saying that yes. they smell like tennis balls. <laughs> yes. And cedar it, uh, Sommelier, I yes. think you mean. I yeah, love that's it. something different. And so, well, you wouldn't have been smelling wine on that day, because 57,000 British troops were injured on the first day. Cool. And probably 25,000 soldiers on both sides were killed. It was appalling. Anyway, the story I've got comes from just before um, the first day of, of that battle. So here it is. Um, I've been researching it in the archives. It'll become clear later on. So here's the story. Um, a lot of it is actually in the form of a letter written by a British soldier. So I'll read that to you in just a minute. His name was uh, Private Alfred James Lewis, uh, and he was uh, fighting with G Company of the Royal Light Infantry Fusiliers, which were part of the Norfolk Regiment. And he wrote home to his parents, and we've got hold of that letter. And it's pretty amazing. I don't know if you guys can see, but... Um, I've actually got a copy of the um, the letter here. And it's is, written in real does. British calligraphy. Isn't that nice? <laughs> well, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And you can see it's been stamped stamped there. It's Most in the secret. So, yeah, it's, it's been stamped. It's been in the archives for just over 100 years, as I say, but it's now been released. So here it is. Um, shall I just read his letter? It's pretty yeah. remarkable. I think it speaks for itself, really. So here it comes. So this is this is Private Lewis. And we should remember, you know, this guy was, a, a well, was and... A, a young man in an extraordinary position. Anyway, here it comes. <clears throat> Dear mother and father, the autumn is a very bad one. The rain is incessant and it's very hard to believe I shall see you again. The food is good this week. Last week we ran out of biscuits and ended up with just soup for four days. Mm. But our spirits are higher this week. I'm not allowed to tell you very much, of course, but there are new companies arriving who are having success against the Germans. What I want to tell you is a strange tale, and I trust you will believe me. I've been sleeping all right, and I'm of sound mind. I feel I must tell someone, in case I do not return to tell the tale. Three nights ago, I was on night watch duty from midnight to four o'clock. The German lines are only perhaps 200 yards from our trench, and with my binoculars, I could see them moving about, their lanterns glowing. All seemed quiet, but at just before two, a commotion could be heard. A German shouted in pain, and then more voices joined the clamour. My commanding officer woke at the noise and ordered that a flare be sent up. He feared an attack. Under the brilliant phosphorus glare, I saw a sight that I hope I shall never see again. A great, dark figure was moving along the German trench, perhaps twenty feet tall. Whether it was in the shape of man or beast, I cannot say. It had arms, I think, and legs, but... How many, I cannot say. It seemed to be made of smoke or billows of dark dust, always shifting and twisting like knots of matted hair. My commanding officer swore an oath at the sight and sent up another flare. Now we could see clearly. The boys in the trench with me were dumbfounded. A few could not watch. 
but I saw it all. This creature, or wraith, or whatever it was, seemed to lift German soldiers from their trench one by one and pick them apart as if they were spiders in the hands of a schoolboy. The popping sound, the delicate rip of flesh in the otherwise dead, silent night, will live with me forever. Limbs dropped into the mud with a splash. A head would fall under the light of the flare, a shadow rushing to meet it as it fell heavily into the filth. The beast was working methodically left to right, apparently clearing the entire trench, taking the torsos that had dismembered into its maw where they slipped obscenely into the wreaths of its darkness. It seemed to shrink and grow from time to time, never still, never one shape, always sliding indecently along the earth, ever moving, never still, but silent, utterly silent it was. The only sounds, the gurgles and screams of the German troops. I almost felt sorry for them. Were we to be next? Suddenly it all stopped. The shapeless thing lurched to the right, out of the light of our flares, and disappeared into the darkness. It was done. All that was left was the commotion of the Germans moving about in their trench, frantic cries and moans drifting across the damp air. We looked at each other, hardly believing what we'd seen. Our commanding officer ordered us to tell no one, and we have done as we've been told. I write this to you in the belief that someone should know what I saw, and in the hope that the regimental censors allow my words to reach England, even if they must remain secret for now. I send you all my love and hope, and pray that you never have to experience the sight I saw this last week. We fear very much that the creature might return. Does it know or care which side of the lines we're on? Does it have even a base intelligence? Is it of this world? or another. I miss you all so very much, and although I'm due leave before Christmas, I think perhaps I shall not see you in England again. We hear such tales from the front. In hope, and with my most heartfelt sincerity, Alfred. Rock and roll! I gotta say, I gotta say, if I'm Alfred's parents, you go to the mailbox, you know, someone, a mailman delivers you a letter, like, oh, we have a message from our son, I can't wait to read it, hope everything is going well, Why and he sends him that, I Why think you gotta lie to your parents. Why to be creepy? <laughs> you never send a the, nice the thing is, You gotta lie to your is, parents, tell them everything is going great. The thing is, boys, you see, this letter never got to his parents. You see, it did end up in the hands of the regimental censor, and it ended up in the regimental archives until the end of the war. And then after the armistice was signed in 1918, it was deposited in the Imperial War Museum in, in London. And it's been under a Section H notice ever since then. That's kind of like the British uh, military X-Files, effectively. Mm. And they're not open to, to anyone, even those of us, you know, not just any researcher, but even to those of us working for the government until 100 years later. Uh, so, you know, this is early, early days. But I have found two other things which just support this very briefly. Uh, one is I've got a colleague in Berlin um, in the German military who's doing something similar with the Reichs archive in Berlin. Oh, man, and that's got to be fucking complicated and weird. Well, that's right. We're, we're, in there. All, all, fr all, friends, all friends in Europe now, of course. <laughs> uh, we, Let's go with this. Fact, we, like, no, we, no, this, this, oh, this whole drawer is just filled with human teeth. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we even get on quite well with the Poles, actually. Hmm. But uh, here we go. Um, he, he's, okay. he found a telegraph communication that the Germans sent, and it reads, do you want to do it in German, or should I just do the translation? Do the translation, right? Well, let's I'll hear a little bit in German first, and then give yeah. us some translation. Okay. Donnerstagabend, ein Monster überkam uns. 
es gibt keine Überlebenden. Haben die Briten eine neue Waffe? Schreckliche Zinsen spielten sich ab. Nicht einmal Körperteile lassen sich zusammenbinden. Wenig bleibt den Männern. Wir warten Kissel, please put your hands down. Oh, it's, yeah. please stop All right. It. All right, Mr. That's Golden, that's, uh, Sergeant Goldenthrow. Now do it in a human language. <laughs> yeah, that translates as follows. This is word for word. It, it comes across as this. Thursday night, a monster visited us. No survivors. Do the British have some new weapon? Awesome. Terrible scenes. We cannot even gather the body parts. Little remains of the men. We await the dawn. Cool. So that's yeah. one thing. So that and kind of confirms that there was some serious shit going down. What a stressful day. Part, what a stressful part, day when you can't even gather all the body parts. I know. <laughs> you know, there's just, so many body parts. And the Nazis were so organized. Yeah, wow. Yeah. These weren't Nazis. This is yep. 30 years earlier. They're the baby Nazis. <laughs> They're the Muppet babies. Yeah, the Nazis. <laughs> yeah. Baby Nazis. Baby Nazis. That's, well, Hitler was in there somewhere, but still. Um, anyway, I also, I visited the little museum. Just this last little thing. I visited the museum near where this incident was reported. And it's like a little municipal French museum. And it's got loads of exhibits about the Great War and tanks and the Battle of the Somme and so on. Um, but upstairs, there's a kind of little older history corner and i found this woodcut sitting in a corner little picture very very bizarre almost kind of psychedelic swirl swirls in the form of some creature maybe a man maybe an animal it's not it's not clear the text i won't do do my best late medieval french on you but it's 16th century i think uh, the french translates as follows it says drawn from life a horror visited the village this spring It took the children. We abandon the village today. Pray no one ever returns. The dead are walking here. Only the dead will inhabit this land. And the last bit of this story is that uh, Private Lewis, from whom we heard there, he did indeed never see England again. His service record lists him as missing, presumed dead, on September the 22nd, which I think was only a couple of days after he wrote that letter. And there are no details, but his entire company met the same fate. Um, no military action occurred at that part of the front line that hmm. night. And his precise fate remains unknown. Interesting. That's interesting. It's almost like a Cadbury egg for this monster creature, but instead of having that really wonderful fake egg gooey sugary inside, they just had soup. <laughs> Apparently, he, I mean, I would hate to kill somebody, gut them, and then next thing you know, four days worth of soup. Nothing on the inside you want. Only soup. <laughs> I guess they must have run out of biscuits. <laughs> That's what he was there for. Um, I actually, well, you hear a lot about, you know, paranormal activity happening during war, especially a UFO activity, cryptic activity. It's like, obviously, this is some sort of, like, maybe collected energy that comes out of war. This wasn't the only paranormal thing to happen during World War One. There was always also the Angel of Mons uh, that appeared during uh, another. Yes, Mons British... is the, where the pubic hair is. <laughs> oh, is that there, right? I mean, you're right though, Mark, because there are a hell of a lot of weird stories about very strange shit going down in 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 World War One. I. I mean, I've got various others that I'm working on at the moment, but more generally in 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 battle situations, there's um, there's a lot of strange things out there. Awesome. I also want to clarify, Sergeant Goldenthrow said uh, the uh, private heard the Germans shouting in pain. That was them laughing, and he just... Uh, that, uh, uh, that is, that's that's uh, fun. Uh, that's how they express joy. 
It was just a, a, a cultural misunderstanding, wasn't yes. it? Yes, yes. Um, I think that's very likely. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much. Two for two. You always, you always bring such great stories. Thank, thank you, you, Sergeant Golden yeah. Throat. Well, yeah, magustulations, boys. indeed. We've got another caller. Um, this guy, he's amazing. He came to the live show in London both nights. Um, so thank you so much for coming. His name is Neil, and he's got some incredible stories for you. He's handsome. He's got a Van Dyke right yeah. on his face. Which sounds it sounds face. bad. I didn't realize that was... It, it's a conquistador look. Yes, it is a conquistador. Yes. Thanks okay. Thanks for being here, Neil. Oh, that's great. Thank you for having me. So, so where does your story begin? Okay. Um, I've got two stories which were told to me by my mother... Um, they're quite unusual stories. I mean, she's quite sensitive to things like ghosts, but these are quite out there. Is she a difficult I mean, woman as well? Is like, does she is she difficult across the board? Or you want to call his mother a woman? difficult woman? My mom is sensitive as well, quote yes. unquote, but she's also a very difficult woman. Neil, is your mother a difficult woman? Um, I guess, yeah. <laughs> I mean, she's she's a Yorkshire woman, so she's mm. quite a... Difficult, yeah. You know? I dated a Yorkshire yeah. woman for quite a while. They're very difficult. <laughs> well, they're wonderful people, and we all, we all love them. Expert-level women. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I totally believe that these things happen to her, although we just can't explain what... Yeah, well, they were, but we can't kind of debunk them in any way. Um, but, yeah, um... So, yeah, basically, um, she grew up on a farm in Yorkshire in the countryside. And when she was around seven years old-ish, this was in the 1950s, she was playing outside next to a barn. And she looked up and she saw two giant, massive, gnarled, hairy, dirty hands coming over the top of the barn. And the barn's like house height Hmm. so massive and then she saw this face coming up over the barn as well and that was kind of really grotesque looking and she looks back and she sees like the the typical fairy tale troll face Hmm. and she sees it coming over the top she's frozen in fear and she kind of sees it almost debating whether or not to actually climb up onto the barn and um yeah, and then it kind of just just kind of backed off and disappeared. Hmm. And um, yeah, she just basically just ran inside and didn't tell anyone about it because it is pretty far fetched. I mean, so, oh, it yeah, could have just been a basketball player. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, I mean, Neil, you're very pretty- small. Like you're a very small man, <laughs> and your mom is also, I imagine, probably smaller than she- you. Oh yeah, she's smaller than me. Yeah. So it literally yeah. could have been Ben. <laughs> it could have been me trying to fix your damn barn, and then your mother screamed, called me a troll. Where's and left the crying. shitter in this barn? <laughs> you got to make one yourself. <laughs> well, well, Yorkshire, I mean, like they they have a lot of like fairy stories, and it, like it's a very like folklore based uh, uh, area of England, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, I looked into it afterwards, and um, apparently the Yorkshire countryside is quite notorious for trolls, apparently. Hmm. Huh. And now- so, uh, but, you know, it's kind of, well, Yorkshire people in general are quite troll-looking, so <laughs> I don't know. You know. But we can't, we can't start kind of debunk it, because it's kind of a... Um, she said she didn't dream it. I mean, it was a time when, like, she didn't have a TV, so she couldn't, like... 
that couldn't influence or anything. Well, so that's it was, why she, uh, yeah, no TVs. All you could do is go outside, look at the barn, hope you see a troll. Well, it's kind of like Ed Gein <laughs> when he would look up and seeing the crows and all the bones and trees and shit like that. Yeah. He made his own TV. You got to. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, maybe. But yeah, it's just such a bizarre story. So um, I love hey, that. Yeah, shit. How old was your mother when she told you this story? You said it happened to her when she, uh, when she was seven. How long did she hold on to this for? Um, I don't know. I think I was like a teenager, I think. It was kind of as um, I was having some strange experiences and she talked to other people who had strange experiences and she kind of brought it up and it was kind of like, she was very like solemn about it, you know, like, yeah really serious so i totally believe that she saw it oh, I yeah. know well you know my, my belief system and your belief system is that reality it's thin obviously people have experienced these tor- these sorts of activity like all over all over the world every different culture has stories of the hidden like hidden people and so i believe your mom well, man, you build a barn, you're just asking for a troll to come yeah. climb on it. It's like building a fucking baseball stadium, and you're just going to have a bunch of guys in uni- baseball uniforms. That's right. They've got baseball bats. They're baseball players. But it turns out they're not baseball players. They're just a themed gang. Oh, I see. Like the Warriors. <laughs> Neil, do you mind us asking, what was some of the experiences that you were going through when your mom uh, you know, told you the troll story? Um, I don't know. There was kind of just some slightly spooky ones, but I've had a couple of, like, in the Matrix type ones. Cool. As well. So, um, yeah, they're quite... And so you're you're a child expressing to your mother that you're going through some uh, paranormal phenomenon and to calm your nerves she told you that trolls are real <laughs> that was that was the that, that's it, a great way. it don't work it's son really it literally bad. only gets worse than this <laughs> <laughs> yeah you had one she had one more story right yeah this was around the same sort of time it's up yeah this is nuts as well um her and some friends were playing in a field and they passed um, a really kind of crude looking scarecrow, you know, basically sticks with a hat and a coat on it. And they kind of got away and they were about probably about 40, 50 feet away from it. And they heard something like her and her friends. I don't know how many friends were there, maybe about five. And they looked and the scarecrow started running towards them. Weird. And um, they all saw it and they all just ran hmm. and kind of didn't mention it again um but it was again trying to kind of debunk this and it was like she said it was literally a stick figure and how it was running was like on the two kind of sticks that were kind of its legs so it kind of just sort of tottering towards them you know at fast speed but um again it's just it's utterly bizarre it's like i can't really shit it was just obviously there's no one around yeah it's just black fields i wonder and, if like at some point your mom's friends were like spooky shit only happens when we hang out with you <laughs> right <laughs> yeah i feel like this is so sad for the scarecrow and the troll it seems like they just wanted to have friends you right? always <laughs> sympathize with the monster because they just want friends he's a scarecrow he's hanging out with crows all day or no not even because he's, he's <laughs> you please just give us a hug <laughs> give a scarecrow a hug give us a hug shake hands with a troll and hug a scarecrow <laughs> i'm filled with Well, that's not good. (laughs) All right, we got to get on to our next caller. Thank you so much for calling in, man. Great, thanks uh, thanks for having me. Hell yeah, dude. Hell yeah, dude. Good to see you. We'll see you soon, dude. 
Um, okay, we got another caller. This guy is Trevor Smith. He worked at Area 51. Uh, Henry, how aroused are you? Quote, unquote, Trevor Smith. Uh-oh. Um, I, am a, uh, I am incredibly interested, of course. Uh, I know some people that worked for NASA. I was recently bumped into a girl on the train. Uh, never a straight answer. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> and I uh, bumped into a girl that I used to work with at a night job about, like, 10 years ago. And she remember she had an aunt that worked at NASA, and she was explaining that the ant was like, would get drunk and be like, we've been talking to aliens for 45 years. And yeah. I'm just like, if that's the truth, fucking give it to me. A- aliens also might be what she calls her ex-husband, uh, which we don't know. So, Trevor, tell us, when did you start working at Area 51, and what's your experience been like there? Well, I was first stationed there in uh, early 2010, and uh, I was there providing uh, security for the actual installation itself. Uh, through the Air Force, and uh, my experience there was pretty weird, now my question to say is, the is least. Do they use a special polish to get all the claw marks on the reptilians off the tiles? <laughs> like, is that like a thing that you have to... Was that your job, or...? Uh, no, no, I, I kind of just uh, walked around and made sure that uh, no one was taking anything out of the installation they weren't supposed to. Uh, nobody had their cell phones out. No one was taking any uh, any pictures, any recordings, anything like that. Just making sure everyone was uh, staying on task. Okay. Now, my question is, when and you so say it, when you say the installation, is that a specific part of Area Fifty One, or is that just like literally like the the main underground level, or like what the what is the inst- yeah Area Fifty One is the entire obviously area, but the installation is the installation that is located underneath Groom Lake. Okay, so when you refer to the installation on uh, Area 51. That's the installation that's uh, in the responsible for the development of new technologies. They call it the installation. It's right underneath Groom Lake. Oh, cool. I'm really glad they don't call it, like, Wonka's Factory. They always have, <laughs> yeah. you said no, Paradise no. Ranch. There's, like, so many pl- different <laughs> names where it's like, yeah, Silly Town, USA, where it's where they, we may have all these new penis extenders. And it's like, and it's very top secret. The installation yeah, is no, horrifying, though. Yeah, no, I mean, they've got some nomenclature name for it, but just, they just call it the installation. Cool. Um, and this was in response to you guys in the last episode talking about people who served in the military and saw kind of a lot of bizarre things. And I got to witness the development of a lot of new uh, equipment and weapon systems that are probably going to be coming into production, I guess, in like the next 20 years. I would say anything that you guys can see on the outside, online, on TV is an early prototype uh, or a proof of concept. And that it's probably been in development for at least a decade. Mm-hmm. So one of the uh, coolest things that I saw when I was there was uh, called the uh, Beowulf armor, which is basically like, uh, I would liken it to like an exoskeleton or a large suit that a pilot would get into. And it's about 10 feet tall. And of course, I'm not an engineer, so I don't really know how any of this stuff works. But it's about 10 feet tall. And the pilot gets on a little uh, stepladder. The front chest piece kind of opens up. The pilot steps in it, turns around, steps in it. The chest piece close, closes, and then they bring the helmet down oh and kind of screw the helmet on. So the helmet, like, you can't move your neck or anything like that. He's got, like, a 360-degree camera in there. Cool. Yeah, That's and so it's it's strong cool. as fuck. Yeah, he, you, you can, I mean, they had, like, uh, those heavy punching bags that are, like, 100 pounds, 150 pounds. They would have a bunch of those lined up. And the pilot and the Beowulf would just go up to him and just grab him and, like, rip him in half. That's awesome. <laughs> so awesome. Yeah, it test his, his grip strength. Fuck yes. And uh, it can lift cars. I saw one incident where uh, the pilot was lifting a car. He got down kind of on one knee, 
put one arm underneath the car and put the other arm kind of on the side of the uh, the passenger door and stood up and lifted the entire car. And it was like an Isuzu Rodeo or uh, some little SUV, lifted it up. And then he kind of went to put the uh, the other arm underneath the car and lifted it over his head and he kind of dropped it. So they ended the experiment right there. Yes. But uh, yeah, it's capable of lifting a car well above his head. Uh, I know for a fact, because I was out at the range when they were testing the armor that I guess covers the Beowulf, and they were shooting at it with 50 cows. It it, it, it can take, like, a direct fire from a 50 cal indefinitely. I mean, it wasn't getting through it at all. If I could get one of these and, suits, I would never have to fuck ever again. <laughs> yeah. I would just walk around in the yeah. suit all day long feeling just confident and fulfilled. <laughs> oh, it's pretty rad. But I should say there's levels to the installation. I, from what I know, there's about 15 levels. So I was cleared to go down to level five. And uh, when I was there, the highest rank I achieved was was O2 or first lieutenant. And if you want to go down below those levels, you need special clearance. Or if you're actually commissioned or enlisted in the military, you need to be at least, uh, at least on the officer side of things, uh, an O3 or above, a captain or above. No, there's a lot and of so pri- there are a lot of private guys in there too, like a lot of like Blackwater kind of guys walking around to the contractors in there. Yeah, but that's a cover for just government agencies. I mean, the people who get flown in from the airport, um, the kind of outer perimeter, the guards, the dudes who roll around in the white SUVs, you'll see them if you drive up close to Area 51. Yeah, the guys that stop Those you guys from are, taking pictures. The guys that like show yeah, up on the YouTube videos. Yeah, the, the fat kind of scrubs. I mean, they're, they're just contractors, but they're... They're uh, they're part of a government agency, the DOD. I'm not exactly sure which one, but they'll call them contractors. Right. But uh, yeah, so I was I was only cleared for up to level five. So there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on there that I really have no idea about. No, well, it's interesting because the, I know the the private company out of Boston, Boston Dynamics, they've been creating a lot of these works and uh, a lot of the robotics in the private sector. Do you is there any idea or any um, information that they gave you regardless of or regarding when they're actually going to start putting these um, to to use? When they're actually going to start having uh, these war machines come out and fight? No, absolutely not. The only thing I could tell you, like like I said, you know, I was I was basically a, a glorified. Uh, internal uh, security guards so i mean i don't know how long a lot of this has been in development i know that i asked and the beowulf has been kind of in the developmental phase for like 20 years or something oh. and i can give you a point of reference those helicopters they use in the bin laden raid mm-hmm. um those have been in in development or in use for like the past 40 years i mean they're nothing new at all right we've had the technology for that for a long time and even when they did the raid you know they they it was still highly classified, but the thing had been around for a long time. So, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, you could go online and look and see uh, where they're, you know, developing these kind of exoskeletons. And they're kind of small. I would guess it's just like a proof of concept and they're, you know, able to, to show the public. But the thing I saw was was much further along. And one thing I wrote about, which was uh, was pretty badass, or at least I thought it was cool, was they have kind of like this crowd control device, which is basically like a, a huge baton that the Beowulf actually grabs. And uh, I guess it's electrified or uses plasma. I couldn't exactly tell. Um, but this Ooh. thing can just wreck shop. I mean, they turn it on and kind of use it like a bat or, you know, oh just right. a beating stick. And it can just destroy cars. It can go through concrete walls. It can go through steel. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure what you would use. I, I was thinking that you could probably, you know, use it to uh, to stop a car from advancing or something like sure. that. So maybe you'd get out there, a guy with this thing, and just... If a car was driving at an embassy or something, you just whack it with the stick. I just love that um, people in Arkansas think that they can take their rifles and fight the government if they have to. <laughs> oh, you no, can, no, you no can try. way. And I'll tell you this, guys. You know, there's a lot of levels of security 
to actually getting into to Area 51, let alone the installation. So those guys that get on the border, they're still like, I don't know, a mile or two mile, I'd estimate, from actually breaching uh the, the real installation, right? No, I'm and sure, uh, we've heard. Oh, you know, we've heard rumors about Area 51. Of course, the big question is going to be: Are there flying saucers there? Uh, is the wrecked footage, uh, wrecked uh, the wreckage from Roswell? Is it there? My my question is: It's like I feel like, of course, it's not there because they're going to hide it in plain sight. Like literally, it's going to be like sitting yeah. out front. It's like yeah. the the statue in front of the Roswell UFO Museum is literally the saucer that they found and they're like we could just keep it outside nobody gives a shit uh, yeah no doubt well i saw some some pretty interesting aircraft that were in development but one thing i could say that you guys have touched on a lot recently is how much the government loves uh disinformation yeah they have entire uh sectors of area 51 that are dedicated to just going out there and spreading uh disinformation when you say disinformation in what forms are they coming out and they're saying that aliens exist do you do you feel like this whole alien yeah, thing well, is just a smoke screen for what the military is actually developing themselves Exactly. They'd rather you think that there's aliens running around in UFOs than for them to, for you to actually, you know, hone in on any type of aircraft that they're developing. Um, so the, the kookier things get, the less likely the general public is to actually believe it. Right. And, uh, and that's good for them because they don't want you really focusing in. You know, if the public thinks Area 51 is just some uh, Air Force, you know, based and all the better. Now, my question uh, is, so, one, one more question for me is, what is the weirdest story that you had heard while you were working there was it did anybody talk or was it like i imagine the the people that are hired to work at area 51 are genuinely uh closed mouth people it's kind of the idea right is that you have people that don't, that don't gossip no oh, absolutely it, just by their nature you know they recruit people that know how to keep their mouth shut i mean if you don't you could get sued you could get life in prison right. um you could disappear. The weirdest thing I know of is that there are people that breach uh, the kind of outer perimeters of Area 51 and get by those, you know, general contractor security guards, uh, and those people just disappear. Yeah. Mm. I don't know where they go. Uh, I, I was there during the apprehension of a few people that got a little too close to the installation. Um, you take them into custody. You go down to level five. You drop them off, and they're handed off to a kind of a superior yeah, uh, officer, and that's the last that I hear or are any, see. Of them. Are there any rumors that go around? Like what happens to these people? I mean, it seems truly horrific. Lord knows they're not in a uh, in a great situation. Yeah, I've heard anything from you know the basic. They're just forced to sign a contract that says if they say anything, it's life in prison. Probably locked up somewhere, Fort Knox. Um, you know, to the crazy where they're you know killed. Yeah. What if they Whoops. take those guys and they put they they make them fucking pilots and yeah, experiment in, in all the new technology? <laughs> well, yeah, we heard about you know maybe they get experimented on, but we're not sure. But I would say there was a couple other things I got to see uh, when I was there that I, I wrote you guys about. One of which I thought was cool is that the president's limos get outfitted with all sorts of things at Area Fifty One, and uh, one of the things I saw and I got to see as they were testing it, which I thought was pretty righteous but also really creepy is this sort of i guess crowd control device that if too many people were to approach the president's limo or if it was under threat it kind of uh disperses this gas which from my understanding was halon which displaces the oxygen in the area or mm. something like that Whoa. and so basically anyone in the immediate vicinity of, of the president's limo and the president's limo is sealed so he's safe in there it would disperse this gas and just kill everyone around the limo fuck yeah wow um, yeah, then, that's uh, like Kissel after he's drinking all night. Yeah, that's a good. I like yeah, that. Yeah, it was uh, pretty I, heavy. I thought it was interesting, wow. and then I thought it was deeply disturbing because it made me realize, like, if you know, there's a crowd of people around, and right. then there's one hostile. I mean, if they hit this gas, they're just going to 
kill everyone. Well, sticking and, with it being creepy and, and disturbing, I just want to uh, do you have any insight on when do you think this technology is actually going to come again, like I said previously, but now with all the riots happening, the police state is stronger than ever before. Do you, was there any indication of when the military would feel comfortable releasing um, this kind of technology? From my understanding, the only time they ever release any technology is when they absolutely, absolutely have to. So due to a leak or mm. The deployment of some of this technology, it was caught on video or in the case of the bin Laden raid where they actually, you know, had to leave one of the helicopters and destroy right. it, but part of it was left intact. A situation like that, then they'll, they'll keep this stuff under wraps for as long as they possibly can. Mm. And one thing I got to see, which to me answered a lot of my questions about the possibility of UFOs, is an aircraft in development called the Phineas. And the Phineas, I don't know why it's called the Phineas, is basically a long cylindrical tube and I was about 100 yards from this. I was on the airstrip uh, providing direct observation security as they were running this test. It's, I guess I'd liken it to like a torpedo where one pilot kind of lays down in it. And it doesn't have to – it doesn't take off long ways like a jet or anything. The Phineas can basically – the pilot gets in it and it immediately just jumps up into the air from where it was. It kind of sits back, shoots directly up into the air. It can go in any direction. It can stop on a dime. It can go up. It can go oh. down. I have no idea how the propulsion system works for anything like that. Uh, but it was probably the most radical thing I had ever seen. I oh. mean, it can go low to the ground. It can go straight up. Uh, right. It can ISIS spin. got to be scared. I <laughs> hope they – it seems <laughs> they like they should be. Yeah. Yeah. Look, speaking of being well, so no, The one thing I, I wanted to, uh, to touch on was I did have a disturbing uh, – I guess encounter while I was still with Aussie, and this was actually in 2013. See, I was stationed at Area 51 from 2010 to 2012, um, and so after that, I continued to to work for Aussie until later I exited the military and I went on a uh, an intelligence gathering operation that was actually took place in the country. It was close to the Great Basin National Parks in Nevada. And while I was supposed to collect human intelligence, which is actually visually observe and record uh, a group of people who, uh, who are of a specific interest to, to the government. So they, they may or may not be, you know, hostile to the United States, possibly a terrorist cell. We weren't really sure. We weren't given a ton of information. So I went out there in a small team of four guys. And uh, it was about, I have to say, maybe... Zero three, so it's probably about three a.m. when we went out there. Uh, we hiked into the South Snake Mountains and eventually got to the grid location where these individuals were supposed to be. And out there, kind of on a field, were these two sheds, which you'd find at like uh, a Home Depot or something. You know those quick uh, to set up sheds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there was two of them kind of connected to each other, like someone had cut the back off of one and made kind of like a, a little corridor going to the other one and there were some some tarps surrounding that and we were able to see uh, a few individuals going in and out of there and we were maybe be i don't know 200 meters away and uh we recorded this and we decided to move a little closer and i was separated from two of the individuals in my group so we moved about 50 to 60 meters closer so we could get a better view of things and uh, this was just my experience i'm not telling anyone what happened i'm just saying what I saw and what I experienced. Um, as we were recording them, there was a kind of a high-frequency tone emitted, like a, a really loud, I don't know, dog whistle. And there was a big 
flash of kind of white light, like someone threw a flashbang or something inside the sheds. We could see that, and it killed all our electronics. Um, it even scrambled our NVGs, our night vision goggles. They got kind of fried. They weren't working right. Um, our radios stopped working. We weren't in communication with the other two individuals that were kind of located uh, uh, on the other side of where we were. Uh, everything was fried, all our electronics. Hmm. And this uh, took about, I guess it would be about two minutes till things started coming back online, like our radio actually came back online and everything. And uh, we could see no movement down there from that point on. It didn't look like anyone was in the shed any longer. So we couldn't stand it, and my superior made the call to actually go down there and see what occurred. So we went down there, we were able to physically link up with the, the two other members of our group, and we all confirmed that we experienced the same thing, a loud, high-frequency kind of uh, almost dog whistle and a kind of blinding white light. Uh, we entered the structure. It was on a kind of cheap uh, concrete foundation, which is important because in the, the first shed, there was a bunch of maps of U.S. cities set up, and then there were some other cities on there, Paris, uh, uh, Rome, Cairo, Tokyo, hmm. along with a bunch of grid coordinates and a bunch of tarps, and, uh, and then there was a couple tables, nothing else in the, in the first shed. We walked through the little corridor into the second shed, and there was four steel chairs that were kind of drilled, fastened to the concrete foundation through the shed, that had chains fixed to each uh, of the chairs, I guess where they would, I don't know, keep someone chained up. I'm not really sure. Mm. And there was an entire case full of uh, DVD covers uh, where you would keep DVDs. We found no recording equipment uh, of any kind, but there was a bunch of DVD covers. I guess they made a DVD. They would, um, you know, put it in one of the covers and, and log it and date it. I don't know. A lot of the, the cases had dates on them, uh, but the, more bizarre thing is that no one was there. Hmm. Wow, so you basically so, watched people like just disappear out of this shed. Right, and I wish there was some more interesting things in the shed. I don't know if they took stuff with them. I'm not... Yeah. All I can say is 100% certainty, all four of us and we're professional individuals. With, we had like a combined total of 30 years military experience. And these were all straight guys. We all experienced the exact same phenomenon. We know for a fact that there were individuals at this location. We saw them go in and out, uh, he, regular humanoid-looking people. Um, all of our stuff was fried. We were recording it. That was fried. There was nothing on the recording device after that point. We all saw the same uh, bright white light and the high-frequency emission. Everyone was gone, uh, and we don't know exactly what happened later. During our debriefing with our superiors, we were basically told to... Uh, Forget about the entire thing. Great. And you're like, oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah. No, oh, not a yeah, problem there. Yeah, Certainly no, not I mean, about that, that. That led to me, you know, exiting the, the military after a while. It was it was deeply disturbing. I'm positive yeah. of what I saw. It scared the shit out of me. I'm convinced there's a lot of weird stuff going on. Exactly. And, uh, it's like, I'd rather just, like, I'll just discover the joy of making pizza. What? Or, <laughs> you know, maybe I'll get into, like, painting watercolors of pelicans and stuff like that. Trevor, I'm just going to ask, uh, just lastly, what is, uh, after your experience with the military, what frightens you the most right now? What keeps you awake at night? Is it terrorism? Is it the idea of a UFO? Or is it just what the U.S. government is currently doing in their black ops programs? It's a shadow government. I'm convinced there's a shadow government. Yeah. I, I what, think what does that, that mean? Like, what does that mean to you? What do you when you say shadow government? What is the? Uh, can you can you uh, let us visualize it a little bit in your perspective? Well, 
it's trouble. It's difficult for me to articulate it to you. All I can say is that as I moved through my career in the military, and as I got a higher security clearance, and as I was responsible for more things, being at Area 51, you almost felt this sort of resistance or this presence that was operating beside of you, just mm. people in and out that you had never seen before, levels that you should have access to but you don't, uh, communication with you know filing reports for people that you don't know who they are, you have to fill out a report for your superiors and then you have to fill out a subsequent report that goes you don't know where. Hmm. Um, you, people who disappear and are never heard from again, uh, supervisors, uh, lieutenant colonel who got into an altercation with someone at Area 51, never heard from him again, never saw him. Do you hmm. think that also, but I think that there's both insidious reasons for this and also stuff like they have to build paper trails for the money that they spend, right? So I think that's probably true, but I, I mean, there's definitely, I don't believe the president of the United States is, is the commander in chief. I don't believe no. he's in charge of anything. I don't believe Congress is in charge of anything. I don't know that that's a deliberate front. I just think that the buck sort of stops somewhere and mm -hmm. is picked up by somebody else who actually gets to make certain calls. I'll give you an example. There's a little town outside of, and I always laugh, we always used to make fun of it, outside of Area 51 called Rachel. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. It's got a population of about 50. Half those people work for the government. Yeah, that's what I've heard. I've heard that there's like there are towns where outside of Area 51 where it's like everybody who's there works for the government. They're like literally like work yeah. at the commissary at, the, at Area 51. They're like cooking the food and janitors and shit. They're all like living right outside of it. Well, it just goes to show, you know, I, look, I work for the Office of Special Investigations for the Air Force. I had a top secret security clearance. I had that strange experience in the South Snake Mountains, and I was told to just never mention it again. Right. So there's something going on that's above the heads of, of a lot of uh, high-ranking people. I just don't know what it is. But, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm scared shitless now if that makes a difference. Well, yeah. All right. You know what? It does. It does. Yeah, it does. Um, That's amazing. Well, I hope that you're uh, that you do well uh, in whatever harmless business you choose now. Yeah. Um, and if if the government's going to kill you, it'll kill us as well. Yeah. Um, that yeah, I'm just kind of kind of rolling around like a vagrant, smoking a lot of uh, of Kush and, and hanging out. So. That sounds great. That That's sounds a great. That's a way to do it. Um, thank you so much for your insights. That was really important stuff. Thank you. Yeah, I love it. Hey, I appreciate it, guys. Thank you, you for your time. Hail Satan. Hail Satan. Right. Thank Hail you so himself. much for giving me the boner I currently have. This is really great. <laughs> thank you so much. All right, guys. All right. Bye. Bye. You're an Iraq War veteran, correct? Yeah, that's right. All right, great. Are you still there or are you here? Are you, are you back home? No, I, I actually am in Albany now. It's, oh, nice. Is it better or worse than Iraq? <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good question. Actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really um, all right, we're back. Some days it's hard to tell. <laughs> we got another caller. Uh, it's an honor to have him. Thank you for your service. Tamim, he's a former uh, veteran of the Iraq War, and he's got some incredible tales for us about his experience. Thanks so much for being here, man. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thank you so much, man. So is this like a funny story, or is this like a bad <laughs> yeah. story? Uh... I guess it's got it's got funny moments. Oh, but it's, cool. um, yeah. No, so uh, I was deployed to Iraq in 2007. And, um, like, August, we, we got over there to Baghdad. And we were in, like, a, the southern part of the city. And so my company was tasked with kind of cleaning out this area that was like a den for al-Qaeda in Iraq, guys. Which, funny enough, the head dude that we were looking for the whole time we were there is Omar el-Baghdadi, who's oh, yeah. the head of... This now, fuck. Yep, big yeah. time guy. 
So did he get away yeah. on like roller skates, or is it like one of those? Was yeah. he dressed as a sexy lady, and then he goes through like a mall kind of thing? Is that how they get away from these circumstances, or? I'm pr- I'm pretty sure that's it. Yeah, the roller skates with like a burka, maybe. Yes. Yeah. All right. So you're looking um, for Baghdadi. That's huge. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was a big uh, kind of mission task for our company because that area was like their last stronghold in Baghdad during the surge there. Mm-hmm. Um. So we got over there and we took over this building that was a Catholic seminary or former Catholic seminary, and uh, for years the U.S. government had been trying to get the Catholic Church to let us use it as an outpost because it was like really uh, strategically located. It was in a good spot. Yeah. And uh, they wouldn't let us for like years. They wouldn't let the government use the uh, the site until uh, the cardinal got dragged out into the street and got beheaded in front of everybody. Uh, yeah, that's how you motivate these fucking priests. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, shortly after that, they said, all right, you have our blessing so you guys can use it. Um. So we got in there, we fortified it, uh, we took like a couple of pretty pretty big attacks, like initially uh, taking over, because there hadn't really been a presence down there at all for like, you know, years at that point. Yeah, that must have been really hairy. So when you say, the, when you say you're, you're trying to fortify it, it's obviously, uh, obviously still a soft target at this time. What were these attacks like? Were they extremely primitive or were they uh, very organized? Oh, they were organized. Like, it kind of blew my mind the first day we were on the ground there, um one of our they called in like a fake um vehicle born a vbied threat and they said there was a bus out in sector we got this tip that there was a bus that was being used as like a massive car bomb and they were going to drive it into the building that we were uh taking over so they sent a platoon from my company out to go check it out and it turned out it was bogus they got ambushed while they were out there Fuck. um so they ended up making it back to to the base without any casualties or anything and uh, but the bad guys followed them back to the base, and uh. so within probably thirty minutes of them crossing the line back into the you know the uh, perimeter there, we got just lit up by RPGs, oh, uh, PKM machine guns, oh. uh, AK forty seven sniper fire, just everything you can imagine. They threw it at us. Yeah, and what I, I, and, uh, I want to get to the story. This sorry, thing, but just, just in that scenario, what's your brain going through at that time? You were just, I assume, having a, just a normal day trying to, you know, fortify this base, and next thing you know, you're fighting for your life. How confusing is it? It was, uh, you know what? Honestly, like my brain just kind of like shut off. I don't remember uh, very clear details. I remember almost like snapshots yeah. of, of things that happened throughout the, uh, the that whole fight. Because I mean, it lasted. Jesus, like uh, six hours probably oh, wow. until they finally petered off. Yeah. So what do they do? Do they just keep going and going until until y- you either kill all of them or they leave? Is like a t- because they're not going to come and take a, a, a fortified U.S. base, right? They, they can't get in there. You guys got exoskeletons, literally like ten <laughs> foot tall exoskeletons. Right. No, ours were on order. Uh, we didn't have. Them yet, yeah. No. Uh, yeah. They. You know what? It, it, that's the thing that was kind of. Um, I guess I almost want to say like awe-inspiring about that attack was because it really showed their resolve because they, um, you know, they kept coming in waves. They were a lot more organized than we thought. They were using trucks to like pull wounded people out of the fight and bring like reinforcements in. They were bringing ammo into their guys. I mean, they were like really set up and it wasn't until we got the attack helicopters in to just start like dropping missiles on like every right. fucking building around us that oh sorry for cursing by the way i'm sure it's okay though right oh, it's okay yeah, yeah. just yeah. fine <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i've been listening long long enough that 
Um, by the way, side note, Om Shinrikyo was the first like series that I ever heard from you guys. And uh, I'm interested in the uh, adventures of young Sapien. What's he up to these days? <laughs> and he's just <laughs> trying to be uh, trying to be a good student. And I imagine he's gotten very large. <laughs> I'm sure he has. <laughs> young Sapien. Well, thank you so much for uh, listening. Yeah, no, I love you guys. You guys put out an awesome show. Thanks, man. Uh, Thanks, also, uh, Abe Lincoln's Top Hat. I listen to it every week. So. Thanks so much, That's man. That's awesome. Well, we'd man. love to have you back. We'll have you on that show, too. We'll st- speak uh, at more length. But, okay, so let's go back to Iraq. Let's get to it. Okay. Yeah, if you have to it, this horrible story. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So, we're like, uh, the story took place. We were probably in country maybe like four months at that point, And things had been kind of just like a steady, just grind. You know what I mean? Like, we were getting in fights like every other day and uh, just kind of making our presence known, killing guys, taking dudes, like, you know, bagging them up and sending them to de- detainee centers and stuff like that. And uh, there was this neighborhood that was to the south of where our outpost was, and it was like the predominantly Christian area of that part of Baghdad. And, uh, you know, when in 03, when everything just kind of collapsed into absolute anarchy, uh, a lot of the Christians just like got the hell out of there as quickly as they could. But the ones that couldn't really like afford to leave or just got kind of trapped there ended up in like a really bad spot. So there was like mass executions. There was just all kinds of really terrible shit that was happening to these people. And uh, as a result, like, their whole little, like, neighborhood was just totally abandoned. And, uh, you know, there was people that still lived in our sector. There was commerce that went on. Markets were open. People went to work, et cetera, et cetera. But that Hmm. area was, like, dead. So we we never really patrolled in there just because there was nothing – there was no activity. There was no reason to, really. Um, but one night we just, we were out on night patrol and we got this, you know, just kind of like a frago mission to just go like, uh, check it out and, uh, just see if there was any kind of like caches or signs of insurgent movement, whatever. And so, uh, you know, we got in there, we started going kind of house to house and we were just, you know, breaking down doors and searching places. Most of the houses weren't even locked. The front doors were just hanging open. You know, shit was just strewn all over the front lawns of these places and in the streets and stuff. Um, but then some of the houses, they looked like, you know, it's almost like that cliche where it's like dinner was still like sitting on the table. You know what I mean? From like years prior. Mm, um, crazy. And so, yeah, it was really eerie. Like, as soon as we got in there, the feeling was just kind of like, man, uncomfortable being in there, you know? Yeah, well, that's why and, I could never uh, be in the military. I would have definitely eaten some. I would have had some old non <laughs> for sure. It would have been tasty. Like mm, yeah. something. So anyways, yeah, so we, we go to this. There's this one house in particular that we, we cleared it, got up to the roof. And I don't know if you guys have seen... Um, examples of kind of like what this like Middle Eastern architecture looks like, especially in Iraq, but it's predominantly like concrete boxes, really, that they make the houses out of. Hmm. And then they add on just like ad hoc, like structures here and there, like little rooms made out of bricks. Like, a, And so this house had like a brick kind of room that had been constructed on the roof of this house as like an additional, you know, whatever, storage area or something. At least that's what we thought it was initially. Hmm. And... Um, So it had no windows, it had one door, and the door was like this sheet metal kind of thing, right? And uh, it was locked, which was, you know, not a big deal, but it was locked from the inside, which was like kind of strange. And so uh, I just kind of had this feeling like I just wanted to know what the fuck was in there, you know what I mean? Like, and, and my platoon sergeant even was like, just, you know, let's fucking go. Like, we don't need to know what's in there, but I just felt like I had to, to see it. 
And so um, we had like breaching tools that we would always carry. And I just went to town on this door and I was just working it, working it, working it. Finally, I got it to pop off its hinges and it kind of just like fell open. Right. And uh, the first thing that I noticed when this door popped open was the smell that came from inside of that room. And um, I, you know, it's like it wasn't like a decay smell it wasn't like a rotting smell because i mean I've, I've seen and smelled fucking dead bodies i know you know i know what that smells like this smelled like freshly dead people like a butcher shop kind of mm. like just lots of like that heavy copper kind of like blood smell exactly mm. and uh it was pitch black inside and so we uh put our nods down the night vision goggles we put the uh, the goggles down we went in to start clearing this room and uh, it was like a, a hallway that kind of teed off at the end into two other. There was like a T intersection with rooms on either side. And like as soon as you cross the threshold, this is just like eerie, just uncomfortable feeling. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. just kind of uh, just gross. And um, and the smell, you know, that's like my 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 kind of strongest sense memory of the whole uh, thing. And so, anyway, we start clearing it, and we go down one side. On the right side, there was a room that had a metal bed frame, uh, and it had wires that were attached to it that were attached to a car battery that was in the corner. And there was, like, chains on this fucking bed, right? And uh, it was just, like, you know, as soon as we saw it, I was like, what the fuck? Oh, shit. Well, they're electrocuting people, obviously, in this place, right? Mm, I thought it was just and, a strange uh, car. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, the yes, world's worst time machine. <laughs> yeah. No, no, it was the first Tesla. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so then we checked the room on the left, and the room on the left had, like, a concrete floor. It had manacles that were kind of, like, coming out of the that were like attached to the ground and then there was like chains with manacles on the wall and there was blood everywhere in this room and um did you find a small box that if you turned it in such a way pinhead would appear (laughs) i mean this is absolutely (laughs) horrific yeah it was pretty bad and uh so the blood was just everywhere and it was the weirdest thing was because this room had obviously been locked you know what i mean and the evidence from the neighborhood around it had kind of given us the idea that this had been an unoccupied area. Nobody had been in there for probably months, if not years, up to that point, right? And this blood was basically, like, wet almost, still on the ground. So it's like, where the fuck did that come from? You know what I mean? And so... uh yeah, it was just super creepy. It put everybody's hackles up. As soon as we saw that, we were just like, let's get the hell out of here. Mm. Uh, and so we left. And I remember thinking that the strangest thing that bothers me to this day, the reason I still think about it, is because the door was locked from the inside with a padlock. But there was no way to get out of that room except for the door that was locked from the inside. Interesting. Oh my God, that's so creepy. God help, right? Us. <laughs> you know, so everybody's you, got a hobby. Yeah, maybe maybe the bed frame really was a, a teleport device to another dimension. Uh, just that, that just is so bizarre that you would find something, and so you know, of course, like here we find something like that, you're going to call the police, but there you find it, and you're just like, yeah, let's get the fuck out of here. Yeah, let's get like, the let's, fuck out of here. <laughs> like, let's just leave this alone and never think about it ever again. Yeah, exactly. Let's go back to the base and just, like, you know, watch. I don't know. 
Fucking Everybody uh, loves Raymond. Yeah, just, yeah, 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 yeah. Put on Adventure Time and just sit yeah. and watch it. So at that point, was was were you so desensitized to violence at that point? You just sort of took that in and you and you go back. And then when you finished your tour and you got a little time to reflect on your experience, I mean, how did you uh, how did you feel about what you experienced over there with a little reflection back here in the states? Um, you know, I I'm it's a it's a kind of a complicated thing to to talk about or think about but yeah you know like when we were that area that we were in baghdad just in a general sense like we did a lot of good Uh, i firmly believe that like we did a lot of good because there was tons of sectarian violence that was going on when we were there uh sunnis were killing shia like every day wholesale which actually i have another story which is kind of not necessarily as eerie but um every day like for the first couple months that we were there we would find these decapitated bodies like on uh street corners like it was pretty regular occurrence to find these bodies in the morning and uh we always wondered where where the hell did that where where, were the heads we never found any of the heads right and uh about i don't know two or three months later we were doing this big clearing mission through this palm forest that was to the south of the city and we found this mud hut that had like no shit a pyramid like a pyramidal structure of heads that were stacked up inside this building and the ones on the bottom were skulls because they decayed already at that point and the ones on the top were fresh oh my god at some point one of the guys said like be like hey uh ryan you stop piling these heads because it's creeping me out. Like it's got to creep, creep them out. Make them sort Put them in the hole with the rest of. Well, Put it's them in the hole. Did, did you, you get, tell me I'm just trying to have fun? You said have fun with it. Be creative. <laughs> did you find it to be sort of a shrine? Was this something that you think that they went back to on a regular basis and took great great pride in? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Do you think they oh, do this absolutely. shit mostly to... They do this shit to freak people out, though. Isn't that kind of the idea, that they do these crazy, horrible-looking things in order to make you feel fear for, of them? 100%, yeah, 100%. Because, I mean, the uh, like the, the actual physical beheadings themselves took place in public, you know right. what I mean? And they would try and get like a crowd of people around them. Because yeah, look oh, how horrible God. we are. We're we, you know, like you can't beat us. We right. do this kind of shit. Yeah, they might being like ki- we yeah. have ten foot exoskeletons <laughs> with gigantic electronic batons. You, we're coming. We're coming for you. Literally in ten years. Sorry, guy. You know. <laughs> Speaking of like advanced weaponry and stuff like that too, we had this thing towards the end of my uh, tour, and this is absolutely true. It was a microwave gun that we used for uh, crowd control. And so it was on our vehicles. We got like a test unit of it and uh, we had it on one of our vehicles and it was like a big satellite dish looking thing that was on a turret and it had crosshairs and you like sat inside and you pointed it at people. And when you turned it on, uh, it microwaved people. So they would like, (laughs) so they get like really hot. Do they explode? No, no. They would just get this really terrible, like burning sensation on their skin and like in their bodies and so nobody was able to stand it for longer than a couple of seconds before they just ran away cool oh my god well Man. what i can't wait for that to come to the streets of New York. <laughs> I know. Uh, it's going to be here soon. Um well thank you man. I'm so oh glad you're safe and back, dude. Yeah, dude. No, thanks for having me on the show, guys. Seriously, I appreciate it. Love you guys' work. Henry, I can't wait for my pretty face to come back. Dude, October 23rd. I can't fucking wait. It's really good. It's really, really good. Thank, but you you did good. <laughs> Thank you, Tamim. You Thank you good. for your service. Thank you for everything you've done. Hail Satan, dude. Hail Satan. Woo! Hail yourself. Have fun in Albany. All <laughs> <right>. That's, that's <laughs> impossible. Go on down to a yeah, live show sometime. Impossible. We'll get you in for free. 
Okay. Awesome, man. Thank you. Hell yeah. Hell yeah, dude. We'll see you soon. All right, so we got C- we got Seattle McMuttonberry. Mattenberry. I don't think it's a real name. Fake Seattle name. McMattenberry. Seattle McBone. The- <laughs> you got it right. <laughs> well, he's on the phone with us, and he has a uh, a story about an airplane. I guess. Huh? Yeah. All right, Seattle. Start us off wherever the hell you want to. All right. So, uh, 2012 uh, summer, I was flying back from Europe. We were doing this European tour with one of my bands, and. Um, it was me, uh, my drummer Frank, and his uh, his girlfriend uh, on the flight back, and we we uh, we board the plane and we're looking for our seats. And there's this man who has just sitting next to me who's like he's got to be like 300 pounds, and he, he was he did, did not look like in good shape. And I had to uh, the seats were like in the middle of the plane, not like on near the um, on either of the windows so i actually had to i tried to wake him up to get to my seat and he didn't respond so i had to like go all the way around and like make these two old ladies get up to get to my seat oh yeah but about 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 halfway through the um the flight he calls for uh, a flight attendant and he uh he says hey i'm i'm having trouble breathing i'm uh, a diabetic and i haven't had my medicine oh god why would you get on a plane from fucking europe without your shit yeah i know right yeah is this the world's most inconvenient suicide (laughs) (laughs) so he yeah i mean he hadn't taken it in like 24 hours and and he would they so they brought him oxygen they made an announcement that you know hey if anyone on the flight is a um a doctor or a nurse who's uh, got extra insulin you know. <laughs> which one of you i see you thin woman do you have extra insulin <laughs> and so um they they decide to to move him to the back of the plant so he can stretch his legs so so they don't uh, clot up and this is a good move for half- you kissel in the plane <laughs> i am gonna really do good. this yes yeah. but so he about a half hour later he he comes back to his seat and he's he didn't need help or anything. He was walking with his cane. He, he was fine and sat down. And I asked him, like, hey, you feeling better? Is everything okay? And he's like, yes, my son's a doctor, and he lives in Houston. I'm flying, there, I'll be, and I'll be fine. So I put my headphones in, and I'm watching a movie. And about 45 minutes after that, I just feel a cup drop and hit, the, hit my foot. And I look over at him, and he's hunched over, just foam, oh. white foam coming out of his mouth. Yeah, and Ooh. so I start freaking out. I'm like standing up in my seat and hitting the hitting the flight attendant button, screaming for help. <laughs> and yeah, and so they like uh, some people grabbed him, and uh, flight attendants grabbed him, and there was just no there was there was no dignity to this man's death. They just oh. they just, just like they just down the aisle like he's a fucking <laughs> yes, like no exactly. Yeah. They they drug him down the aisle and huh. put him in like the snack cubby where they like oh, well, with a curtain they just drug him into the, and put honestly, him in the snack cubby and just closed the curtain I'm not gonna I don't wanna be insensitive here but the man was a diabetic he was morbidly obese this is the proper burial in the sky <laughs> snack cubby this exactly that's how they do it die. This, this is fine I have no problem with the way this guy die. is gone <laughs> did he shit his pants well, okay. So here, so <laughs> I, we're gonna get we're gonna get to that. So okay. I, 
I'm like I'm kind of freaking out in the and well this is a problem the too is also on a plane I, I would say to be honest in me in this scenario I wouldn't say anything I would literally go and put a sleep mask on him and be like oh somebody's taking a nap just because they are not turning this plane around I need to get where I'm going sure <laughs> so I um I'm kind of freaking out and the flight attendants get my friend and uh, who is t- about 20 seats behind me and they're like hey, is that your friend up there um, in the red shirt um, and, you know, I think he, he could just need someone to talk to you if you could like come talk to him. So he sits down. And I told him like everything that happened and he's like, oh, fuck, dude, like that's crazy. And he goes, wait a minute. Was he sitting in this seat? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and, he, and he goes, OK, well, if you're cool, I'm going to go back to mine because this seat's wet. Oh, uh, yeah, bro. You wanted your friend to come sit in the corpse's seat? <laughs> and first, how did you get an upgrade out of this? How did you get bumped up to business? Did you at least get free headphones? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know, man. We, the flight was almost over. But the the big twist that I, I sent this to, to Marcus um, before any of this happened, when we were on the flight, People were still boarding. While he was sleeping, sitting next to me, I took a selfie with him. Oh, all right, let's oh. see it. I sent it to Marcus. Oh, God. Oh, no. <laughs> a selfie with a dead man. A future yeah. dead man. Oh, he does look like he's having trouble. <laughs> all right. So what inspired you to take the selfie with the future corpse? So I, well, it was my first, you know, trip to Europe, and I, I just thought it was funny that, like, to, to end the trip, I was, you know, having to sit next to this man who was, Huge like, man. halfway in my seat. Yeah. And so while I was sleeping, I just, you know, snapped a little selfie. Wow. Wow. So. Yeah, so I have the last picture with this with this guy. Now, so do we know any, did, first of all, did you get a free flight? Nope. I, I didn't get anything out of it. I, I just kind of. Yeah, I didn't, nothing happened. Did they let him out of the snack cubby? Ever? <laughs> or is he still there? I don't. So when I, uh, yeah, my drummer and his girlfriend, they were, when they were leaving, um, like walking down the, the aisle, he like peeked in. And to like in the curtain to see if he was in there, and like yeah, I mean he was. They had his shirt was open, and it was like, he was all all blue. And oh my god! Yeah, we had to make an emergency landing. Did and, they put him but, on yeah. fucking like the baggage claim? How do you? I don't know what you do with him. Yeah. <laughs> Good lord! Call yeah. again. I they, don't, there's got to be like a corpse story. closet in all airports. There has to be every airport has to have some sort of protocol because people have to die on planes all the time. I I guess guess so. Yeah, planes. Yeah, I, one of the flight attendants talked to me. He said he'd been doing it for like 15 years. He said that was like the sixth time that's happened. Uh, really? Yeah, I'm horrified. He's been a flight attendant. Yeah, I'm so, gonna die on a plane. I know I am. Uh, well, it <laughs> seems very accurate. If you got diabetes, you're done. Um, wow, well, what a great story. Thank you so much for sharing it. Um, Good, that yeah. is great. You know, I don't think it was wrong of you to take that selfie. You didn't know he was going to die. You're being an no, investigative no journalist. Yeah, that's technically, you're just you're just in the moment. That's it. <laughs> man. Well, they, thanks for having me on, you guys. This thank awesome. you for, for saying that horrible story. That's great, man. Thank yeah, you. We're calling. Yeah, yeah, can I... Um, um, can I do a little uh, a plug for uh, for my band? Yeah, yeah sure. I was, act- I was actually going to ask. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, so I'm uh, I'm in this. Uh, I know I'm sure there's a lot of grindcore and like death metal uh, fans out there. We're listen to last Richard podcast. Guyfus. And we're from- <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm in a band called Cryptic Void. Uh, you can go to crypticvoid uh, dot bandcamp to check us out. It's just kind of like 
you know, old school grindcore, death metal influence. Uh, we're actually coming to doing a whole European tour uh, next year sometime in the summer. Still figuring out those dates. And, um, yeah, you guys should check it out. Hell yeah, yeah dude. We'll check that out. That sounds great, man. People will. I will say, if you are on a seat next to Seattle, move, because you'll die. You're going to die. You're the cursed <laughs> one, I think. Yeah, my uh, my bandmates were making jokes, like telling me that I have to ride a greyhound next time we do a tour. <laughs> you know, I can't. And I'm not. I'm not allowed to ride. I'm not allowed to be in the van. Oh, yeah, no, like, no one dies of a heroin overdose in the bathroom of a greyhound. Oh no, no, never. <laughs> no it never happens. Um, thank you so much, buddy. Hail Satan. Hail Satan. Thanks, guys. Hail yourself, buddy. Thank you. All right, our next caller, his name is Jared. He's got a creepy tale for all of us. He's not the sandwich-loving pedophile. No, he's not. We know that now. Mm-hmm. Hate that asshole. Yeah, yes, good. He ruined That's your a name. good stance. That's yes. a very good stance. Um, so uh, you um, you have a doppelganger, or believe you do? Uh, uh, yes, I do. At least I think I do. I, I've never personally seen him, but I've had a lot of family members report that they've seen him from around two to five years old interesting all right so you're two years old your parents obviously you're not really there mentally yet but your parents claim that there was another two-year-old running around the house huh uh yeah basically see my parents we built our house in a suburb up here in Coeur d'Alene Idaho when I was around two and then we moved in the house when I was about three and since then they've on and off reported seeing him or hearing him or such and how does he uh show themselves how does he show himself to your parents uh the first time my uh, the first time he was seen it was actually my dad who he didn't see him but he heard him when i was little i had a room directly next door to their room and because the house wasn't completely finished the bathroom closest to me wasn't done but theirs was so every once in a while being kind of afraid of the house because the house has always been a little creepy to me in a sense like very oppressive almost i would run through their room into their bathroom to use it Mm -hmm. and this was this was about a weekly maybe bi-weekly thing so it wasn't exactly rare but it wasn't common either and one night my dad just says that he he was laying in bed sleeping just completely fine and all of a sudden he heard the sound of footsteps running past him so he woke up and looked through the light and there was nothing. He tried to uh, urge my mom awake to possibly check on me. But when they got the bathroom door open, they found no one in there. Lights off. I was dead asleep in my bed. Hmm. Interesting. So your doppelganger had to pee in the middle of the night. So yes. how were they sure that this wasn't just a ghost and not your and, and your it was your doppelganger? So they saw uh, they saw you. In places the first where you shouldn't be. Yes, that was the first time. Yeah. So, so how did it develop? Uh, the second time was maybe about a year later. My mom, I had an early bedtime because I was a little kid, obviously. And since my room was right next door to theirs, my mom would often have to walk past my room to get to bed. And so she would often just look over, just make sure I was asleep, everything was okay. And one night she's walking through the hall into her room and she turns her head and just for a brief second, she recognizes that I'm standing right by the bedpost, fully dressed, fully awake, just staring straight at her. She doesn't, re- she doesn't realize it, of course, so she just looks over to her room and then freaking out because it's the middle of the night. I shouldn't be awake. I should be in bed. She turns her head. I'm fast asleep, completely in my pajamas, just sleep in the bed. Interesting. Hmm. 
I actually feel like that's kind of a, it's more of, instead of a ghosty thing, it's more of a glitch in the matrix type thing. It seems to be a, she's like creating you. It's probably, because they were new parents, right? Did you have brothers and sisters before that? Do you have older? No, I'm the only child. So I wonder. Or not only child, I have one younger. I just, you have one younger. So I feel like, uh, yeah. I imagine, to be honest, uh, well, I don't know anything about raising ch- children and probably will never know. Never but know, I, yeah. But I will, but I think that, <laughs> you know, what could have happened is that they're literally overwhelmed with having a new child and literally they're mm-hmm. seeing you everywhere. And it's like, in your, yeah. your reality's thin, right? So they're literally putting you in places. Unless there's a common occurrence in your family, has this happened to anybody else? It's happened to my grandmother, actually. This was probably, I'd say, less than a year later. Uh, often during the weekends, my parents would take me out and just hang with their friends and whatever. They had, their friends had kids my age. It, I was out of the house most weekends. And, but we always left the house doors unlocked, so often my grandparents would come by to check on the house, just make sure everything's okay. One day, my grandma is driving past the house, and she looks into the window and just sees me just standing there be, or with the curtains pulled around me. Hmm. I'm just standing there looking out the window, looking at her. So obviously she's kind of like freaked out, like why am I home alone? I'm about four. I shouldn't be left at home, alone at home. And so she parks, walks up to the door, opens it, searches the entire house. I'm gone. She calls my parents. I'm with them about 50 miles away. Wow. wow. So you're never alone. Did you ever try to speak to your doppelganger? Um, I've never personally seen it, but I have kind of felt its presence almost. A lot of the time when I was growing up in the house, I would always feel like something was watching me or I was never alone in a room. And a couple times, like, I've been inside one room and then I leave for a couple minutes and I come back and things are moved around. Or in one particular case, we had a tub full of Legos that was just sitting in the middle of the floor. No way it could, like, have been moved or anything like that. I leave, and I hear the sound of it crashing over onto its side. Hmm. All right. And actually, do you know anything about the concept of doppelgangers, Marcus? Have you read any? Like, I know it's, it is a lot of times it's labeled under glitches in the Matrix slash ghosts, like weird reality occurrences. I mean, not really. I mean, really like doppelgangers and things like that. That's more like old, old school folklore yeah. type of stuff. Yeah. There isn't, it's not really anything that's in like the current paranormal community that really gets into doppelgangers hardcore. And there's a great book called The Double. That's about that, too. That's very, yeah. very good. Well, that's great. So, Jared, um, any other stories you want to share with us? Not any ones that spring to mind. Like I said, it's just rare occurrences. Around the time that my brother was born, it just every single side of him just disappeared. Hmm. Yeah, like, I wonder if that's just because you're getting older. And I think kids, kids, obviously, they attract more paranormal activity and they give off more energy because literally their brains are growing. So they're like yeah. little fountains of energy. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Could be. Well, either way, if he was anything like you, he was an adorable doppelganger. <laughs> what a doppelganger he <laughs> was. Yes, His yes. name is Diraj, and, which is Jared backwards. And the mm. evil Jared would have been happy to have seen the two young boys running around his sex <laughs> den rather than just See, the I one. think he's probably the good Jared. I feel like I'm more the evil Jared. Yeah. So, mm. so you're a murderer. <laughs> I can't say that. Thank you. That's good. good. Again, Let's again, not say smart, that. good stance. That's what um, you do. Well, thank you so much for calling, Jared. We, uh, we really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. Hail, Hail sweet it. Satan, buddy. Hail yourself. Hail Satan. Hail Satan. Bye-bye. 
The next caller is Olivia. Her her mother was almost a victim of a very famous serial killer. Is that correct? Olivia is with us. All right. So, um, well, Charles Cullen, he was a nurse who was a serial killer in the area where I kind of grew up. I grew up and um, I live now. And not a lot of people know about him, which is kind of scary in my opinion because they get treated at the same hospitals that um, kind of helped cover it up. Cool. What he was doing. And my grandfather, when he was, um, he was really sick, and he was in the Somerset ICU. And um, the doctor, I believe, gave him about a 20% chance of surviving. So Charles Cohen, who claimed to be an angel of mercy, we believe that he kind of fit, like, the profile exactly. And, um, like, long story short, um, my grandfather, when he was in the step-down unit, so after his recovery, um, in the same hospital where Charles Cullen was killing, and he put on the TV, and um, they basically found out right then that Charles Cullen was charged with murdering a whole bunch of people while he was the nurse, and he pointed to the TV and said, um, that's the man that tried to kill me. So. So how did he stop him from killing him? Well, I believe my mom was kind of responsible for why my grandfather is still here today because she got special orders from her doctor to stay over in the ICU overnight, which you're not supposed to do. And she was with him all the time. And Charles Cullen was responsible for kind of spiking all the IV bags. And That's my, what I heard. Yeah, because so he yeah. would come in the night while the person was asleep and essentially inject bad shit into the... Or like, you know, give the... They were saying like it's overdosing them, essentially. Insulin, mostly. Yeah, and my grandfather was in there for pancreatitis. And um, he did kind of have like ups and downs and a lot of really bad episodes in the hospital, which um, when I read about... Charles Cullen, a lot of his other victims, they had that kind of spiking up and down and overdosing on insulin. So how many years did this guy operate for? I know usually these nurse serial killers, it's extremely difficult for them to uh, be caught. You need such a huge amount. I mean, people go to the hospital to die, so when they leave in a body bag, it's not necessarily such a huge red flag. It was many years. So uh, well like, over 20 years. Yeah. about twenty. I think he made it 25 years. So your grandfather was one of the later victims, or almost one of the later victims. Yeah, he was in the hospital. Um, the Somerset Hospital was where he was caught, and he was still in the hospital while he was charged. It's horrifying. Do you give any credence to this idea that the serial killer himself did think he was doing good? Um, yeah, I believe that he liked to play God. He was really religious from what I know, and even when he was in prison, he donated an organ, so he was still kind of playing with like people's difference between life and death. Cool. Who wants the organ from prison? I'd take it. Take it if you need it. Any organ? Yeah, I'd take pig organ. Well, I guess you wouldn't have to go to nursing school. They tend you can uh, you learn what the person knows. I had this idea the other night that I was poo pooed for, which is you get a scientist and you take him hostage and you tie him up in like a garage Mm -hmm. and you have him build all the shit for you, like you know, and he'll be three D printing all the organs for you, and then Mm -hmm. you have your own scientist. You don't need to wait for fucking doctors. Yeah, it sounds like every bad action movie plot of all time. Or what we did. That's, that's Iron Man. You just described the first yeah. 30 minutes of Iron Man. Make it real. Make it real. <laughs> um, well, that's so fascinating. So how is the family doing? Is everyone recovered from this disgusting, uh, horrifying event? Are you guys scared of the going to the hospital now? Um, I'm not really that scared, but where our local hospital is, um, 
the weird thing about it is it's the Huntington Medical Center in Flemington. And from doing reading, he was there for three years, and he said he didn't kill anybody for the first two, but he admitted to killing, um, I believe, at least five to eight there. But um, coincidentally, the Huntington Medical Center destroyed all their files while um, they were investigating if he had killed anybody there. So to me, it was kind of suspicious that they didn't want anyone to in my opinion, know if the nurse had been killing patients there. They just can't let their credibility be attacked. So that's yeah. what they do is they basically cover it up. It's they like when the Secret up. Service killed JFK. Yeah, um, actually, like all of the hospitals he had worked at had the same thing where they would fire him because they knew he was responsible for killing people. And it took the Somerset Center to finally become involved and lead to led to his arrest. Also, what they, with pri- what they do with priests that touch kids. Well, thank you so much for calling in, Olivia. We really hey. appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Hail Satan. Hail Satan. Hail Have your, fun in Jersey. Hail your grandfather. Hail yourself and hail your mother. Okay. Bye, guys. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Doki. The only reason why I'm spending all my time running around between these buildings is because somebody killed a guy from the rice box. <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? You don't tell me that I'm not I'm not just a spider man. I'm a spider goddamn hero spider soldier. That's oh, what right. I need to change my damn name to. What I need is oh, one of these 10-foot exoskeletons. I'm sick of getting so tired just jumping from building to building. Oh, the robots do it. You're Spider-Man already, so you don't need an exoskeleton. The whole yeah, point. Anyway, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. fine. I don't make any money. Amazing stories. Thank you, everyone who called in. I mean, those military stories were so creepy oh, and so, so real. Uh, the the uh, the ghost tales were phenomenal. Trolls. Um, wow. <laughs> phenomenal stuff. Thank you guys so much. Marcus, great finds. We have amazing listeners. Huh? We, we let you do it, and you did it. Yep. You and did you it. know what? You're welcome. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. You're welcome for us letting you do it, and you did it, and we didn't really do much, but you did it, and we're, we did it together. Free, free speech, please. You're back in the clink. Um, I didn't say anything rhyming with anything bad. That's correct. <laughs> um, all right, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. Hail yourselves. Keep on checking out all the shows here on CCR that Mr. Parks and I do. Uh, we had one listener mention Abel against Tom Pat. I think we might actually try to get him back on for a longer interview. God knows yeah. what else is in the minds of these unbelievable heroes over there and uh, uh so thank you for supporting Ablingen's top at roundtable of gentlemen the lucky bone show Bang. sex and other human activities we have to plug holden's new show otherwise he's not going to be a long, around long enough um wizard well, in the in the bruiser wizard in the bruiser yes so no one ever celebrates me i'm a true hero everybody says oh spider-man take it spider-man for goddamn granted where's but, my interview <laughs> do you want an interview i'll tell you a scary story one time i was okay. going down to mary jean when i lifted up my head it turned out to be the lizard man again. <laughs> okay, so I was you like, I've been blowing a man. You accidentally? How did I you confuse? Like, I was like, your pussy's getting longer, girl. I know that door. It's a and lizard. He went. Because that's the sound a lizard makes when he fucking comes in your mouth. This seems like a difficult thing to confuse. I'm the real American superhero. <laughs> All right. Hell, one and all. Hail, Hail Satan. Happy Halloween. We're building up to it. Fucking don't kill a boy this year. Don't ever do that. That's the rule. This year, just try not to kill a boy. Ever, ever, ever. Ever, ever. Make goose delations. Hail me. Never, ever. Never once kill a boy, especially this year. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It says here I have to talk about something I need to get off my chest, and I guess I can share it here. I. I eat mayonnaise for fun. It's a hobby of mine. And it's an addiction. 
It's a daily weight on my life. How much I need whipped egg whites and oil crammed into my veins. As soon as I wake up, and a lot of people carry around a lot of different stressors, big and small. Some people are presidents. Some people are soldiers. Some people have to eat mayonnaise, especially with hard-boiled eggs, which is what I eat for lunch. But I guess I should share that in therapy. Because therapy is a safe place to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And what I do is I just add eggs if I have mayonnaise left over. I just continue to add the eggs. But if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I hope they can help me. My God. I hope they can help me. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash LastPod today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp! H-E-L-P dot com slash LastPod. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. It's the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs who are looking to stand out and succeed online. Everyone knows the holidays can take a toll on your bank account. If you're looking for a creative way to increase revenue and give your family and friends the holiday treats they deserve, then you need to get started with Squarespace's new feature, Squarespace Courses. If I needed to give a class on digging holes, I'd do it. Squarespace has the tools you need to create and sell your own online course. Start with a professional layout that fits your brand. Upload video lessons to teach techniques and skills. And tailor your course with the powerful built-in Fluid Engine Editor. Plus, you can charge a one-time fee or you can sell subscriptions. Turn your creativity into income with Squarespace courses. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, go to www.squarespace.com slash left to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash left.